0: sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright, and this was odd, because it was the middle of the night. The moon was shining sulkily, because she thought the sun had got no business to be there after the day was done. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. The sea was wet as wet could be, the sands were dry as dry. You could not see a cloud, because no cloud was in the sky. No birds were flying overhead. There were no birds to fly. The walrus and the carpenter were walking close at hand. They wept like anything to see such quantities of sand. If this were only cleared away, they said, it would be grand. If seven maids with seven mops swept it for half a year, do you suppose, the walrus said, that they could get it clear? I doubt it, said the carpenter, and shed a bitter tear. Oh, oysters, come and walk with us, the walrus did beseech. A pleasant walk, a pleasant talk, along the briny beach. We cannot do with more than four to give a hand to each. The eldest oyster looked at him. But never a word, he said. The eldest oyster winked his eye and shook his heavy head, meaning to say he did not choose to leave the oyster bed. But four young oysters hurried up, all eager for the treat. Their coats were brushed, their faces washed, their shoes were clean and neat. And this was odd because, you know, they hadn't any feet. Four other oysters followed them, and yet another four, "'and thick and fast they came at last, "'and more and more and more, "'all hopping through the frothy waves "'and scrambling to the shore. "'The walrus and the carpenter walked on a mile or so, "'and then they rested on a rock conveniently low, "'and all the little oysters stood and waited in a row. "'The time has come,' the walrus said, "'to talk of many things.' of shoes and ships and sealing-wax, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot, and whether pigs have wings. But wait a bit, the oysters cried, before we have our chat, for some of us are out of breath, and all of us are fat. No hurry, said the carpenter. They thanked him much for that. "'A loaf of bread,' the walrus said, "'is what we chiefly need. "'Pepper and vinegar, besides, are very good indeed. "'Now, if you're ready, oysters dear, "'we can begin to feed.' "'But not on us,' the oysters cried, turning a little blue. "'After such kindness, that would be a dismal thing to do.' "'The night is fine,' the walrus said. "'Do you admire the view?' It was so kind of you to come, and you are very nice. <laughs> the carpenter said nothing but cut us another slice. I wish you were not quite so deaf. I've had to ask you twice. It seems a shame, the walrus said, to play them such a trick after we've brought them out so far and made them trot so quick. The carpenter said nothing but the butter spread too thick. I weep for you the walrus said. I deeply sympathise. With sobs and tears he sorted out those of the largest size, holding his pocket-handkerchief before his streaming eyes. Oh, oysters, said the carpenter, you've had a pleasant run. Shall we be trotting home again? But answer came then none. And this was scarcely odd, because they'd eaten every one.
1: In the depth
0: of the forest an old the pride of the greenwood there. Or his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs
2: were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh. Hello, David Oakes here, and welcome to Trees a Crowd this World Oyster Day. Genuinely, I did not know that was a thing. And it is completely serendipitous that we're releasing a special all about oysters, or to be more precise, oyster reefs, today. But there you have it. An oyster deity has obviously pursed its shells together to smile down on us all. Lucky us. A massive thank you to John Hartock, the man who made me, for better or worse, the actor I am today, for kicking us off with such Carolian aplomb. So, oyster reefs. What are they? Where are they? And why should you care? Long-time friend of the show, Dr. Bryce Stewart, marine and fisheries biologist, is back to talk to us today. Regular listeners will have heard a full-length interview with him already, where we discussed sharks and getting the bends, and making new friends by writing one's mobile phone number on lobsters. Bryce is great. Then, a new acquaintance for us at Treesa Crowd, in the guise of Professor Rowan Lockwood, Chair of Geology at William & Mary University in Williamsburg, Virginia. But we're going to kick off with someone whose inquisitive mind has challenged me far more often than both Bryce and Rowan combined. My seven-year-old niece,
1: Josie. I want to know why you don't chew an oyster. Why you don't chew an oyster? Gosh, that's a good question,
2: especially from a seven-year-old. I, mean, I don't think he's ever had an oyster. But...
1: You, you actually can. There's no, um, there's no reason. Not to other than I think some people don't like the taste of them and they like to sort of act as if they're brave by eating them But they don't like the taste so they just swallow them down quickly, but actually particularly if they're cooked. I I remember having some um, Oysters Kilpatrick which if I'm if I'm not mistaken is with bacon um, And that was delicious and you know you ate that with a knife and fork basically so yeah, you don't you don't uh, have to swallow them straight down, but some people do.
2: So I guess that leads me on to a question: in in simple terms, what is an oyster?
1: So an oyster is um, what we call a bivalve mollusk. Um, so the bivalve means bi means two two shells or two valves, um, and a mollusk is a type of snail. So uh, that is it. It's a, it's a snail inside a sort of two piece shell basically like a like a scallop or a mussel very similar sort of organisms
2: and in their natural habitat they form what we call a reef essentially they sort of live on top of each other piled up on.
1: yeah so that's where oysters are a little bit different from some other um or a lot of other uh, bivalves is that they actually stick together and form these big reefs some other species do it like mussels do it as well but oysters are the masters of this sort of thing And that's actually really important because it it provides habitat for lots of other species all in the nooks and crannies between each individual oyster. And also by doing that, they bind together the seabed, the sediment in the seabed. So they stop that moving around in sort of waves and storms and things like that. So they protect the coastline and the beaches. And then they also... One of, one of the ways that they um, also help to keep the water cleaner as well.
2: I think one thing that people take for granted is that the sea is just a sea and there's one thing. But the fact is that in, in certain marine coastal areas, there's lots of different kinds of habitats like mangroves and corals and seagrasses and many other things besides. But there's about, as, as I read, there was 85% of these coral reefs have been destroyed over the last 100 years. More than any other kind of coastal habitat, they've been sort of the focus of of destruction for a whole host of different reasons and obviously you're saying about all these good things they do whether it's stopping tidal erosion and filtering water without that 85 percent there anymore there are a whole load of problems that rise up as a result
1: yeah that's right so if you actually look at um historical charts of the north sea for example the southern north sea it was once covered with oyster beds and the story goes because obviously there's no way that that we have any records of this, that the North Sea used to be quite clear, you know, unlike the sort of grey-brown North Sea that you see at the moment. Because of these huge oyster reefs, you know, extending pretty much across the channel, um, that they were filtering so much water that, you know, it was was the sort of, the two things. The one thing was that they were filtering the water and keeping it clean. And then, of course, like I said, they were stabilizing the sediment as well. So they completely changed the environment. But yes, sadly, we have lost certainly around the UK um the native oyster. It's over 90% of its historical range. Um uh, it's disappeared from. And so that would have led to a huge sort of change in these in the marine environment in general.
2: I read that they could filter something like 200 liters of water a day in individual oyster.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um yeah, 200 liters, over 200 liters per day uh, or another fact I heard was a one-acre reef can of, of healthy oysters can filter something like 36 Olympic swimming pools worth of water. So, you know, that's pretty extraordinary. Um, there's some nice clips on on YouTube showing where you have two um, aquarium tanks full of dirty water and and then you put oysters into one of them and within, you know, a short while it's crystal clear and the other one stays murky. So they really are fantastic um, at filtering filtering the water.
2: One of the reasons why I particularly thought they'd be good at sort of helping our future not be so bad is that they're particularly good at destroying algae that grows as a result of all the nitrogen and phosphates and all the stuff that we're putting into habitats for agriculture, artificial agriculture support. So if we were to have a greater marine diversity as a result of these oyster reefs, we would also fix some of the damage that we're doing as a result of over-farming of of the land there's one the the ocean could help support the land mass in terms of supporting us
1: yeah no that i mean you know you're just coming up with another sort of reason why they're so cool um (laughs) basically because they're like a super habitat Uh a super species so yes they also remove nitrogen from the water and that is becoming an increasing problem both because of um, you know expanding human populations as you said farming the land We're getting all this runoff of nitrogen-rich sediment coming into the coastal areas, and that, if you get too much of it, basically um, causes these huge algal blooms, which, first of all, kind of looks horrible and smells, but then when they decay, they use up all the oxygen in the water, and they create these deoxygenated areas, uh, or sometimes known as dead zones. because everything else then dies that can't move away. Um, so this is a really big problem. And it's it's actually getting worse with climate change because um, the, the warmer temperatures with climate change and the way that it stratifies the water stops the water mixing. So it makes these sort of blooms more likely to occur. And in some cases, the higher rainfall with climate change as well is, you know, exacerbating the runoff from the, from the land as well, so bringing even more of these nutrients. So it just shows that restoring natural species and habitats like oyster reefs is really essential. I mean, it's a fantastic way to tackle these issues. I mean, obviously we should be not farming like that in the first place, sure. but, but to try and remediate what we've done, um, you know, they're a fantastic species. And of course, in making their shells, they also sequester carbon out of the um, out of the seawater, which is which is the carbon is getting into the seawater or some of it from carbon dioxide from greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and so, you know, they're re- they're really ticking all the boxes.
2: So what you're saying is they remove runoffs from over farming, they remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, they taste great with bacon, they stop. T- a tidal and coastal erosion they create a biodiversity blo- yep. bloom for loads of young species including commercial species um, well this
1: is it you know lots of things live amongst them and then of course also they're an important food source you know i mean i uh, just think of the oyster catcher for example mm-hmm. as a prime example i always think oyster catcher is a funny name though because you know it, it, it suggests that they have to hunt these things down whereas maybe they should just be called <laughs> oyster eaters rather than catchers but anyway um, yeah lo- lots of uh, lo- lots of birds and, and um, crustaceans, you know crabs and things uh, will eat oysters and of course yeah us, us humans as well don't mind them either.
2: So are there a number of projects at the moment where people are trying to reinstate them where they used to be or to support them where they remain?
1: So yes, that's something that's really boomed um, in the last few years has been these restoration projects and what they we, we actually we know we can do it because funnily enough one of the things that's been quite successful around the UK has been farming of Pacific oysters but they're not the obviously the species that belongs here so, Pacific oysters, if you go to the you know, seafood store, it's probably what you'll be given to eat. But it's actually the native oyster that we want to encourage to bring back. Um, and yeah, there's a whole number of um, projects. I mean, just to name a few, there's one down in the Solent, funded and run by the Blue Marine Foundation. There's another one in Essex, also involving Blue Marine and the whole partnership of industry and academics. Um, the one I really like is, um, I mean, I like them all, but uh, there's one up in um, Donwick Firth in northeast Scotland, which is a partnership with Glen whiskey. <laughs> Okay. Whiskey. Um, and uh, basically because one of the um, outputs from whiskey production is, you know, the wastewater. Uh-huh. So they've initiated this um, quite sophisticated wastewater treatment to make sure that the water is is clean going back into the estuary where Glenmorangie is situated, and as part of that, they're also funding um, a big project to restore the oysters there. So, I think they've they've already planted something like twenty thousand oysters so far. So it's kind of oysters and whiskey. It seems like the perfect combination. It sounds to me. like a great night out, doesn't it? Yeah.
2: <laughs> there were other projects that I was looking at, which discovered that. Uh, building up oyster reefs around wind turbines is a good idea because wind turbines out at sea are often in relatively shallow parts of water and so they're ideal for not only having the environmental benefit of 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 green energy being created there but also they could provide a home for the oysters and the oyster reefs
1: yeah i mean that that is another good um good option because what you need to establish the oysters is something to kick-start them so you need some They live, obviously, often in these kind of muddy, sort of intertidal areas. Um, So you need a bit of hard substrate for the first lot of oysters to stick to. So one way to do that is to lay down old shells, or they don't even have to be oyster shells, just something. But obviously, another way is using the rocks around the bases of those wind turbines. Um, If you can encourage them to grow there, then, yeah, that's... um, uh, you know, it's, again, it's it's ticking lots of boxes at the same time. You're producing renewable energy, you're providing habitat and biodiversity. Um, one good thing about wind t- turbines is they're not disturbed either, because um, you know because they're they're commercial structures, yeah. um, protected generally by all sorts of regulations. So no one can. Can go there without a permit, um, so there and no one can fish there unless yeah, it's been arranged. So automatic, protection. Uh, it's kind of a neat exactly. It's sort of, yeah de facto or automatic protection, which works really well.
2: Indeed, Bryce, thank you very much for taking the time. That's hugely appreciated.
1: You're welcome. No, always a pleasure.
3: My name is Rowan Lockwood. I'm the chair of geology at William and Mary, which is a university in Williamsburg, Virginia. I'm a conservation paleobiologist which means that I use the fossil record, specifically the fossil record of oysters, to help us understand how we can restore um, their diversity in the modern Chesapeake Bay.
2: Wonderful. So one of the people I spoke to on the podcast was um, a malacologist called Eleanor Michelle, who, if people have been listening to the podcast, will understand why the fossil record of uh, mollusks can be used to tell us about past climates. But What is it about that that got you particularly interested in the first place? Why did you go down this route?
3: I've always been interested in applied science and interested in the opportunity to apply fossils to a wide variety of questions. And when I moved to Virginia, I'm sitting in this watershed of this absolutely incredible estuary called the Chesapeake Bay. And it really struck me that although biologists have studied it for 50 years, and 50 years seems like a really long time on human timescales, it's not a long time to me. And most of the data that we had on oyster reefs in the Bay was based on our 50 years of observations. But by that point, the Bay had already been utterly destroyed. It has been dredged and overharvested and overfished now for about two centuries. Mm -hmm. So I remember having this uh, epiphany that we've never actually seen a natural oyster reef in the Chesapeake Bay and that the fossil record is really the only place that we can see that.
2: So what are the fossil record telling you about what a natural reef would be? And and are your hopes to create a new one? Is that what's going on now?
3: Well, I don't think we're ever going to get back to the diversity and the abundance of the fossil reefs. But I was first struck by how large the fossil oysters are compared to today. They're exactly the same species. Um, They grow in the same way. um, But they're quite a bit larger. So modern oysters really um, max out at perhaps five or six inches if you leave them be Mm -hmm. for a few years Um, but my fossil oysters some of them grow to over a foot and so I started with the question of hey are they growing faster in the fossil record were they growing faster in the past and that's why they got so much larger or were they simply living longer and that's kind of the, the first question I started the research with
2: and what was the answer
3: uh, well, the answer was that they're simply living longer. Okay. So um, I used a technique called sclerochronology where I basically saw these oysters in half. I put them under a microscope and I collect tiny um, samples of shell powder from the hinge of the oyster, from the top of the oyster. And I can do that at such a small scale under the microscope that I can basically um, use this shell powder to track how cold the winters were and how hot the summers were going back about one to two million years. Okay. And what that lets me do is basically figure out how long these oysters live. So, did they live for two years, four years, 10 years, 20 years? And so, what I discovered is that these oysters in my fossil reefs that were so big were actually living much, much longer lifespans than oysters in the Bay today. So, the average oyster in the Bay today. Lives a maximum of about five years. Mm-hmm. But in the fossil record, they're living up to 25 or I, I even found one uh, a few months ago that's 32 years old when they died. Wow! And they can do all of that using this, this technique called sclerochronology.
2: So if you're saying that the biodiversity of the area has diminished and that we won't be able to bring the reefs back in quite the way they were, would it not make sense that if we just left it alone for longer and allowed the oysters to get larger, that maybe that would open up a window to perhaps getting it close to what it was before?
3: The short answer is yes. I think part of what we're struggling with is that um, for a long time, our ideas of restoration have really been based on what scientists first recorded in the Chesapeake Bay in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and then today. And so all of our restoration goals a lot of our ideas about where oysters used to live in the Bay, they're all really tainted or biased by what we've seen after harvesting.
2: It's baseline the syndrome kind so of thing. It's going back to what we knew. It is. Not. Yeah.
3: Exactly. So marine, marine ecologists call it the shifting baseline problem um, that we think that we know what a healthy reef looks like. And in the Chesapeake Bay specifically, um, a reef is considered restored if there are 50 oysters living on a square meter of Chesapeake Bay bottom. And it turns out when you start looking at these fossil reefs, you start doing the calculations, um, there were literally hundreds if not thousands of oysters, right down to larval oysters living per square meter. Oh, wow. When we're restoring oyster reefs and declaring mission accomplished in some parts of the Chesapeake Bay, we're nowhere near where these oyster reefs used to be in the past. And that's a pretty simple reason why they're they're not coming back on their own. We sure. still have harvesting pressure. And we actually have an invasive disease. So we have disease pressure that are affecting the modern oysters. But our definition of recovery is um, really misses the mark. It sure. misses the, um, the hurdle to such a degree that these oysters are not coming back. I do incidentally think if we were to leave the oysters completely alone for about 10 years, they would begin to come back on their own. Sure. But in our area, we have a huge sociocultural and a huge economic pressure. We really rely on the oyster fishery in the bay it has given decades of um of watermen their livelihoods Mm -hmm. and so we have to be really aware of of the socio-cultural and the economic pressures here as well
2: a lot of the arguments going on in european fisheries especially from the marine biologist side of things is if we do leave things alone if not entirely but a bit more alone than we do then the numbers will come up substantially that 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 would be of benefit to the fishermen and the watermen as well it's ecology works in the interests of, of fishermen.
3: Absolutely. And that's actually been the argument that I've used when I talk to both state and federal agencies. Um, I think from my perspective, there are two issues that people seem to have with that argument. One is that it's untested. And so in the Chesapeake Bay, it's been, you know, really, we've been using a lot of the same techniques over the last several decades. They're, they're quote unquote, tried and true. hmm. Um, people feel like they're working well enough. So they're certainly not bringing the oysters back, but they're working well enough to keep the harvesting going. And so there's, there's definitely an attitude of it's not broken, don't fix it. Whereas I argue we haven't tried it. How do we know it doesn't work better? Yeah. Right. How do we know it doesn't work better and make the, the, the fishery even more sustainable with less cost to state and federal agencies? The second issue that comes up a lot is timescales. So really for us to, to leave the oysters alone, to let them bounce back, that's about a, a decade. That's about a 10-year timescale. Mm-hmm. And that is forever um, for a waterman. That's a very long period of time you know, for a family that is trying to feed themselves and keep things going. And so I'm pushing uh, for a middle ground here. I'm pushing for more sanctuaries, and I'm pushing for longer-term sanctuaries in the Bay today. Today, our sanctuaries in the Bay are very short-term um, and I think if we were just to ratchet some of that up we could begin to see we could begin to see a real difference
2: by sanctuary You're meaning a no fish area and no human contact area kind of thing
3: I am so right now the definition of sanctuary in the state of Virginia Means that you know some of these reefs are left um, off of harvesting for one two, maybe if we're lucky three years and that's not a true sanctuary if your oysters are supposed to be living for 25 to 30 years um, and the way we fish oysters, we have a minimum size limit, but we have no maximum. So you basically pull uh, the way dredging works. Mm-hmm. It shaves all of the oysters off the bottom. And then the ones that are too small get thrown back in again. You never have a choice or never have a chance for those larger, older oysters to, to actually proliferate in the bay.
2: Yeah. And one would imagine if you're trying to create a reef with uh, a significant density of creatures, the last thing you need is a, is a dredging rate going through and destroying the habitat.
3: It's impossible. So, you know, the Bay faces a number of the same issues that um, estuaries in the UK face, right? So we have incredible sediment pollution, sediment runoff from um, deforestation and from lots of development. Um, We also have a huge amount of nutrient runoff from human activities, and that nutrient runoff ends up producing big algal blooms. Mm -hmm. Those big algal blooms um, lead to anoxia, or in other words, lead to a big decrease in oxygen at the bottom of the bay. So if oysters are only allowed to live right at that, what we call the sediment water interface, right on the bay bottom, if they're not allowed to build three-dimensional reefs, they can't get up away from that sediment pollution. They can't get up away from that anoxia. And the cycle just continues. Um, So it's very interesting in the bay. A lot of the state agency funding is spent on trying to recreate oyster reefs that are two-dimensional that are just on the bottom rather than three-dimensional where they avoid a lot of these issues like sediment pollution or um like anoxia Mm -hmm.
2: um i guess one of the things we haven't really touched on is we've spoken about oysters as food i guess for the farmers fishing it and the livelihood of, of humankind what are the other benefits to humanity and indeed to the marine ecosystem from having a substantive and healthy oyster reef
3: yeah, so um, it turns out that, that oysters aren't particularly pretty, but they're <laughs> really, really useful. So, um, oysters are ecosystem engineers. They build a big three dimensional, ideally, they build a big three dimensional habitat on the bottom of the bay, and that habitat is used by lots of other species. So, when I sample these fossil oyster reefs, I don't just find oysters in there, I find tiny preserved crabs that have been living in the oyster reef and died and ended up in the fossil record, lots of other organisms, including fish, use these oyster reefs as nurseries. So they, they actually build and main habit, maintain habitat for other species, including species that, that we like to fish.
2: Did I read an article the other day that um, a whole load of, uh, I want to say blue crabs have come back to Chesapeake or something? There's a species of crab that's just come back in quite a significant numbers as a result of the oyster research. Am I making that up? I might be making that up.
3: No, no, the blue crabs are doing better. And, the, and blue crab nurseries are directly tied to oyster reefs. So, so yeah, no, it's, it's anything you can do to help the oysters. By definition, you're helping 100 other species at the same time. And a lot of those species are, are important to us economically.
2: Um- I get one question that I haven't asked, actually, which is probably quite important, really, is where do you find your fossil records? Are you diving down into an old reef or are they exposed on the land from when the, uh, the bay limits were different? Like, Where are you finding your fossils?
3: Yeah, so the vast majority of fossils that I work with in this area are um, above the current water surface. So if you think of the Chesapeake Bay as a giant bathtub, um, it's a bathtub that filled and then emptied um, several times during the last ice age. Uh, at least 18 different times during the last ice age. Um, As temperatures got colder and warmer, sea levels dropped and rose, um, the bay would fill and empty again. And some of those larger intervals of um, the bay filling and of sea level rising, we get a really good record of. And so that record is above the water, and I can basically walk along these oyster reefs, I can collect them, Um, The really beautifully preserved ones are 10 or 20 meters long. They're about three meters high. Um, And the oysters are preserved basically in life position, which means they look like they just died yesterday. They're still articulated. Hmm. They're still in the same position they were in when they were filtering about 400,000 years ago. And so most of my fieldwork is by kayak or by boat. (laughs) And I basically kayak up and down all the creeks and the rivers in our area looking for these oyster reefs. There are oyster reefs that are under the bay surface too, but it turns out they are a lot harder to get to, sure. and they are a lot more expensive to sample. So most of the work that I've I've done up to now has really been above the water surface.
2: I think anyone who, who makes a living working in a kayak has basically won at life.
3: <laughs> that's, that's nice to hear. It doesn't always <laughs> feel like that. If it's 100, 100 degrees Fahrenheit and 100% humidity, um the, the Chesapeake Bay, I, I kid you not, it can reach temperatures of a warm bath. Uh, so I got to be honest, there are times in July when this fieldwork is not as much fun as it should be, but, uh, <laughs> but it's usually a lot of fun.
2: How much longer have you got out there doing this research? Has the project got a while to live or what's the plan?
3: Yeah, so um, it's a local project for me. Um, I live, you know, literally within about five minutes of the York River, which is one of the rivers, of course, um, in the Bay Watershed. And so I intend to be doing work on oyster-related projects for a good long time. Um, right now, I've run out of fossil oyster reefs to sample. So you know, if anyone out there listening <laughs> to this podcast, if they have give us a ring, in call on in. And in the, exactly. You know, <laughs> you, you have no idea how helpful it could be. Um, but I'm also starting to collaborate with archaeologists. So archaeologists have oyster middens, mm-hmm. which are basically the archaeological equivalent of a kitchen dump that's preserved in Native American sites. And those are a really good source of information for me about ancient reefs. Uh, I'm also starting to work with a number of oyster ecologists, um, including at the Virginia Institute of Marine Sciences, who are doing population modeling and they're doing some hydrodynamic modeling of oyster reefs. So, this is a project that I, uh, I intend to be working on for a good, good long time. You know, if some miracle occurs and and suddenly all the oysters are back in the Chesapeake Bay. I may slow down somewhat, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, I see this as a long-term project.
2: Um, one final question before I let you go. Um, do you like eating oysters, or do you feel like it's a bit, a, a crime against your vocation?
3: <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> no, so I, uh, I do eat oysters. I don't eat a lot of oysters, um, but I do think it's important to be able to eat your study system, and I think <laughs> it's important to be able to understand sort of the the sociocultural and the economic factors that are at play here too. Um, I do my homework. So there are a couple of um, watermen and aquaculturalists that that, uh, I like to buy from along the York River. So I'm always thinking about the water quality and I'm always thinking about the folks that are farming these oysters sustainably. So I do my homework and I only buy from them but it's, it's a big part of the economy and the culture in, in our area. Um, and so I do feel strongly that there's this balance, right? And that I want to be part, part of that balance.
2: There's something wonderful about talking to um, natural historians and uh, botanists and the like. I was talking to a mycologist the other day who went into it because he liked eating and foraging uh, fungi and mushrooms. I was speaking to <laughs> an, an entomologist yesterday who referred to insects as flying prawns and found that was good. And in fact, Bryce, who I spoke to nice. about, about oysters as well, says he went into scallop research just because he thought they were particularly tasty.
3: So They are. They are particularly tasty. Yeah, I had... So one of my fondest memories, I did my master's um, research at the University of Bristol, and one of my fondest memories was sharing a house with a few other women who were doing PhDs in um, the zoology department, mm-hmm. and one of them was studying salmon, so we had an endless supply of salmon. One of them was studying quail, uh-huh. so we had an endless supply of both quail and quail eggs, and so I, I there's a long tradition, I think, of <laughs> natural historians eating their study There's a there's a myth and I've never been able to figure out whether it's true, but there's a myth about scientists eating frozen mastodon and mammoth meat. Uh So, you know, that that mastodons and mammoths can be preserved in places where there's permafrost and places where there's ice cover. So think Siberia or think places in Alaska. And I was I was told when I was an undergrad that there were paleontologists that tried to actually eat the meat because they saw modern wolves scavenging this meat and this meat has to be literally has to be older than 13,000 years. Yeah. This is old frozen. I mean, if you think of the worst sort of freezer burned meat you've ever found at the bottom of your, your fridge, this is much, much worse. (laughs) Uh, And I've always heard that the paleontologist sampled it and then ended up in hospital. Um, but I've never I've never done the due diligence to see if that was a true story.
2: I'd love to know if that's true. And I'd also love to know, like, if they did end up in hospital, I want to know whether it was because, A, it was just old and stinky, or whether or not because our digestive tracts have shifted in some way that we can't uh, access ancient proteins or something like that. I don't know. The, the questions are limitless.
3: It's a fascinating set of questions, especially since a lot of that permafrost is melting right now, right? So. Yeah. Um, Also coming out of that, this has nothing to do with oysters. I know, we'll include all the best stuff for
2: the sort of the weird avenues you end up talking about (laughs) afterwards.
3: So um, I don't know if you've heard, this is another um, cool topic for a podcast, but there's ancient um, caribou and ancient reindeer that are melting out of the permafrost in places in high latitude Europe and Alaska. And live anthrax is actually being communicated from these fossils to modern caribou. And so anthrax is actually is literally melting out of the permafrost and then making its way into the food chain in high arctic latitudes right now as we speak. So, you know, this idea of of global warming having a direct effect on us mm-hmm. in terms of diseases is, um, is absolutely fascinating.
2: So. Well, all the stuff that gets caught under ice, whether it be sort of methane emissions or whatever, that's just bubbling up and making everything worse, the more it melts back. It, uh, who knows? Anything could happen. Anthrax—that's not good. <laughs> Poor Caribou. No,
3: no. Well, and I think in in some areas, um, I've heard that you know people are already aware of it. So the park rangers and the natural resource managers are already aware of it, and they're they're working on um, working on the issue. But it's fascinating, right? I mm. I guess I'd never really thought about whether viruses and bacteria could survive the deep freeze. You There's know, no reason why not. thirteen thousand I mean... years.
2: I mean, we yeah. keep them all in a containment booth somewhere, I'm sure. There, there'll be a sample of smallpox somewhere hidden away. And if there was an unfortunate... Sure, the
3: CDC, yeah. the CDC has their deep freeze.
2: If there's so an unfortunate Atlanta, Georgia... Tibetan explorer who went up and got lost in a high altitude and actually had smallpox at the time, who knows what could happen as a result. There you go. There's there's a film idea like I've just sold to Universal. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you totally have. I, I, yeah, I can see it coming. <laughs> the next horror film.
2: <laughs> Roan, thank you very much indeed that's hugely appreciated and I hope we can meet up in person You're and continue so welcome, this discussion
3: David. I would love that
2: and that's that on oysters this world oyster day If you'd like to know more about shellfish and mollusks and the footprint that they leave in deep time, and who wouldn't, head back to Season 1 of Trees A Crowd to hear my interview with the Natural History Museum's favourite malacologist, Eleanor Michelle. We're back again in a fortnight. Enjoy the remainder of World Oyster Day. Why not celebrate by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts using an unhealthy amount of oyster emojis or indeed just by reading my thoughts on today's episode at treesacrowed.fm. Anyway, until next time, thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.
1: Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak
2: and the ivy Oh